Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello, you're listening to the Prospect Podcast at the end of extraordinary week for the British Constitution, we thought we'd better record an extraordinary episode. Boris Johnson was resoundingly defeated at the highest court in the land, which means that Parliament, which didn't think it was sitting, suddenly found out that it was after all. The best laid plans for party conferences were thrown into chaos and, much more significantly, the 10-year-old Supreme Court waded deeper into political territory than it ever had before. To try and make sense of all this, I'm delighted to be joined by Catherine Haddon of the Institute for Government and the barrister Adam Wagner. First of all, um, Kath, in very broad brush terms, what was this ruling all about? So there were three aspects to this ruling. It was about whether or not the prorogation should have happened and what should happen now. And they basically ruled three things. Firstly, that it is okay for the Supreme Court to get into this area. It is justiciable. Uh, secondly, they decided that uh, the prorogation, the length of it, meant that it was unlawful. And thirdly, they decided as a result of that, that the prorogation had never happened and that we should therefore return to early September and a parliament would continue. So as if nothing had ever happened, but of course it has, because the clock has been wound down for a bit in line with Boris Johnson's original plan. Absolutely. And also, because the prorogation never happened, you also haven't had the end of session. So we've now got a parliament with uh, some legislation that was uh, was supposed to have ended and we would have gone into a new session and a Queen's speech. But instead, that that legislation still continues, that parliament uh, parliamentary session still continues, but without the government having a lot of a new agenda to come. So we now have a parliament sitting, uh, but with a bit of confusion about what it's actually supposed to be doing right now. And do you have any sense as to whether or not there's about to be another prorogation, maybe a shorter one? to get that Queen's speech? It's difficult to know. I think the Conservatives at the moment probably just want to get through their party conference uh, and see what Parliament, what the Commons is doing whilst all their MPs are up in Manchester. After that, we don't know. I mean, they've talked about the desire for a new Queen's speech to showcase their domestic legislation agenda. But to do that, they need another prorogation. But it, given the, high, the Supreme Court's judgment, it would have to be a much shorter one. But they can have one that is just basically a day. So it might still happen again. Um, Adam, one thing, as I said, is that the, the Supreme Court, um, you know, this felt like a, a big march onto 
political um, territory. People often say the top court has got no one else to pass the buck to, so it can get a bit jittery, a bit nervous. But they didn't this time, did they? No, I mean, and and, and the judgment couldn't have been more emphatic. There were 11 justices um, for the first time in British political, British legal history, as far as I know, that 11 justices all went the same direction, because usually you don't have 11 justices. And the only the, the only time the Supreme Court has done that before was the first Miller case. Um, and they really did. They, they What they did, rather than stepping into political territory, they very clearly claimed their space in constitutional territory and I think there is a difference and they see themselves as in in that light that this isn't about politics although it's it involves politics and they were quite clear that some legal questions do involve politics but that doesn't necessarily leave mean the court has to stay out but what they did do is cement their place as the constitutional court of the United Kingdom. And so the constitutional principle that you think that they established or reaffirmed, what was the most important one? Kath talked about three points. Well, well, they they reaffirmed one and they kind of established another. So the one they reaffirmed was parliamentary sovereignty. And that is the the kind of er principle of the British constitution. It's where it's 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 the foundational starting point of how our entire political system and legal system works is parliamentary sovereignty that 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 the that parliament is that is at the top of the tree the, the principle that they in a way affirmed and perhaps developed cooked up um, well i mean it depends how you see things and and i think there is a there is a decent argument on both sides and amongst constitutional experts is um, this idea of parliamentary accountability and specifically that the executive is accountable to parliament. And so it follows if the executive is uh, accountable to parliament, the executive can't, by definition, do something which would stop parliament being able to scrutinise the executive. Cass, do you think that um, the Queen, I don't think they directly accused the Prime Minister of lying to the Queen, did they? No, they said that it was unlawful. They they were actually another area where they tried to avoid getting into the politics of it is they left the intention of the Prime Minister to one side. They talked about it only in as much as uh, the length of prorogation, whether there was a legitimate reason why you would need a five-week prorogation, the fact that it, you know this is pretty much unheard of in the modern era, that you don't need a prorogation that long to have a Queen's speech. So the arguments that the government had put forward in the case, they sort of dealt with those. So he was fibbing, even if they didn't need to get on speculating about what the real motive was. It wasn't really. So what they tr- they were very careful to avoid getting into that question about you know the prime minister's advice to the queen and so forth in terms of whether or not, as you know, the Scottish court said whether or not he was misleading her or not. It was about the fact that it was unlawful. Uh, on their definition of what a lawful prorogation should be, and actually that's the other area which is in effect, new, because we haven't had a sort of legal definition of what length of prorogation or on what basis it can be. They've established that by going back to case law, by going back to constitutional uh, principles and so forth. So they felt that there was a body of law which supported their position, but they, for the first time, have explicitly sort of set out that there should be limits to the both the length of prorogation and also the way in which it's being used and that this one breached those limits. 
Is this a new thing then? If even if we've not all got into whether the, we were lying to the Queen, is it new? This idea that you have to be reasonable when using a power that's historically been the Queen's power uh, to um, like dissolve Parliament in this in this way. I don't think the court would would explain it in that way, and I don't think they did. And, and and they were very careful in the way they described it. What they said was, this isn't about if you if you imagine every power has a boundary. Imagine a circle drawn around the power and the individual in the middle who exercises the power. Now, what the the um, what one of the arguments one of the arguments that was put before the court is that the within that boundary, the government had behaved in a way which was improper. And therefore, it was an improper use of the power they had. And the, the court said, no, that, that's not how we're going to present this. This is about the government were being outside of the boundary of the power they had. And therefore, they didn't have the power. And, and the way that they expressed it was, if, you, if when the government uses its prerogative power, the prime minister or the queen... If, in order to demonstrate that the, they are within that boundary, they have to provide a legitimate reason for using the power. And an illegitimate reason, and this is the, this is the crux of it, an illegitimate reason would be preventing the um, parliamentary scrutiny or prevent, preventing parliamentary accountability. And that is where they got to. So what, and then they said, well, in actual fact, looking at the length of the prorogation, so five, we, we cannot find any reason, let alone a good reason, any reason provided by the government for the five-week prorogation, which would fit within the boundaries of the power. But it's still, it, it, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it still kind of makes us a more clearly a constitutional monarchy in the sense that this very ancient powers are now answerable to law in a way that, like, in certainly in distant times, they wouldn't have been. But they always have. I mean, they've been answerable. Prerogative powers have been reviewed by the court for at least 400 years. I mean, they went back to a, a case from the 1600s. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not that prerogative. Prerogative powers have always been reviewable. Yeah. But it's a question of which powers and how. Um, but there is an entirely legitimate way of looking at this, which is that the Supreme Court has cleverly and carefully and subtly expanded its own power over... Um, over the executive by by doing this, if you look at it in political terms. Okay, so let's move on now to where this leaves us in a few different respects. First of all, and most narrowly, um, Cass, where do you think it leaves us vis-a-vis the Supreme Court? We know in Britain the judiciary hasn't been politicised in the way that the American judges are because they're appointed by party politicians and so on. Do you think they're going to be able to maintain that now? I'm going to take the historian's answer and say it's too early to tell. Uh, No, look, um, it is, I think, clear that they have set down a marker that they see themselves as a constitutional authority, uh, able, uh, you know, to get into these kind of areas. And that means that, you know, others wanting to try and challenge the government on constitutional matters will now turn to the courts in, you know, the expectation that if it reaches the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court will, you know, be willing to consider its role to get into these kinds of areas. Um, It's difficult, where it is difficult to tell is that there, because of the nature of our constitution, so much of it based on convention, this was another notable thing about the case, that they talked quite a lot about the fact that basically that conventions are 
you know, a form of law. And it was almost a reassertion of that fact because in the last few months, we've had this real tension between things that are in statute and things that are based upon case law, constitutional convention and so forth, which, you know, historically, we have still seen as very strong instruments of the constitution, but just operating in a different way from how legislation statute works. And they have reasserted that. And, uh, you know, that is, I think, quite a fundamental position that they've taken. Um, okay, so the court is, like, making itself known. The... Um the person, Adam, of the Supreme Court president, Brenda Hale, is now much more of a public figure probably than she was a week or two ago. Absolutely. I mean, and, and, and I would I would I, I agree um, that this is it's it is slightly too early to tell. But I think this is very much in line with a long term evolution of our political system and of the top courts, the apex court. Um, and you can see that there's sort of three three things that have happened. First of all, the rise of judicial review, where you come from a situation um, of a famous case called Liversidge and Anderson about the um, the government's powers, um, wartime powers, where the, the courts just said we're not going to get involved. And that was traditionally the view to through the 70s, 80s, 90s, where the courts are now much more comfortable getting involved in in decision making um, of, of political authorities. The second development was the Human Rights Act 20 years ago, which has now created a generation of judges who are much more comfortable not just considering whether decisions are rational or irrational, which is a very high bar, but whether they're proportionate. You know, are they, do they meet a legitimate end? Are they rational ways of, of meeting that objective? Um, and I think the third development was the, the creation of the Supreme Court 10 years ago, which I mean, I was reading an interview with Lady Hale today from nine years ago, which I wrote up at the time, and she was already saying we have to be totally separate from government. She, she was worrying about the cafe because the cafe was being run by the Ministry of Justice and the website was supremecourt.gov. And she was saying we can't have that. It's got to because we're going to be making these constitutional decisions. We have to separate out. And I think those three dynamics have moved to have really show along with the case law of the courts that over the last 10 years that the court is taking on this constitutional mantle like keeping it high um politics at the constitutional level for the moment we'll come back to what it all means for brexit and all the rest of it um i know adam you've written i think i've written both of us in the last year that like all the fuses being blown in the way the um uh, countries run by Brexit might mean we need to think about a completely different type of constitution, one maybe that's somewhat more written down um, at least. But there is a point of view that you can look at this and say power was being abused. The Supreme Court did its jo job. You know, one side of the constitution pushes harder, the other side of the constitution pushes back. And maybe the muddle along British constitution is working after all after this week. Maybe. Um, I, I mean, I have a I have a concern about that, which I which I've written about, which is that I think there's something quite unstable um, in the in, in in fundamentally in a Supreme Court acting as a constitutional court, basing on based on an unwritten constitution. And whilst all the will in the world might be for the judges to be you know to do the right thing and to follow British history and to apply political conventions, at some point maybe it was this case, maybe it's the next case, the public will say, well, one minute they're just making it up as they go along, um, and and the politicians are already saying that because they lost, and I think that is I'm not saying they are making it up as they go along. I think they're following a path, but I do think there is a, a, an inherent instability and one which would 
not be solved, but would at least be mitigated by a um, by as all sitting down together as a, as a as a democracy and coming up with some basic written principles rather than um, assumed. Okay, Cass. The other thing I'd say on that, I mean, what has changed quite dramatically in the last year is not only just public engagement with the constitution and awareness of it, but also, you know, as Adam sort of implied, the confusion around it, that, it, it, you know, it's very difficult to justify that you've got these grey areas where it's a little bit unclear as to what happens. I have to talk about how prime ministers are appointed all the time and what the Queen's role is. And it it's hard to explain that there's this kind of grey area where you're looking for who is best placed to be able to command confidence, but there's no f- formal process for how that's defined. So I think partly... Ex- ex- you know, that lack of explanation for people about what the constitution is, but also they're looking for constitutional authorities. You know, they want to know, okay, who is the referee here? Who's in charge? And I think what we've seen, not just in, you know, the Supreme Court's decision and stepping into that role as a constitutional authority, but actually also the way in which people are bringing cases and going for a legal route through what are sort of, you know, a mix of constitutional and political problems Uh, You know, because some of this is about who's got authority between Parliament and the executive, you know, all sorts of battles over how they use the different procedures of Parliament and stuff like that. And and, and the fact that people are turning to the courts now for that shows that there is a desire for a clearer constitution. Um, But the background to this is, as your old teacher, Peter Hennessy, has said when the progression was announced, is the good chap theory of governance you know we have these phrases like the usual channels and so on and um you know the will of parliament will emerge and it relies on this idea of a good chap i i mean the so yeah the good chap theory uh that peter has talked about peter hennessy has talked about uh quite a lot yes there is something about um the way in which we rely on constitutional norms and behaviours and sort of accepting and adhering to principles. And that has certainly been thrown into question. I mean, it's much broader, though, really, uh, than just the question about how the government behaved over this. It's actually, if you look at what's been happening in Parliament in the last few months, the way in which everyone's looking for very fixed interpretations of the rules and looking for what they can do within those existing rules, where there is room for manoeuvre, where there is not. You know, even talking about the way in which emergency debates can now be used for... Uh, getting le- for the opposition parties to take control of parliament and get legislation through you know it's happening so it's clearly possible to do and yet if you'd asked a clerk you know parliamentary clerk a year ago they would have said no 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 absolutely can't do it that way because at that time their interpretation of how the rules works was very different now because everyone's like yes but does it specifically say you can't do that and you have to say well no but it was interpreted that way that doesn't fly anymore so there's something more fundamental that's changed which is about people looking for sort of you know rigidity and specific definitions of what you can and can't do and we've got all of these gaps but isn't the reason people hanker for this specificity for this kind of absoluteness that politics is very polarized and so no one's in a mood to compromise and whether you settle these things by convention or statute or whatever else like People aren't going to accept it, are they, Adam? I mean, the people who think, well, the referendum was the final word and you said it was the final word aren't going to be convinced because we wrote a load of rules down, are they? I don't think 
the constitution is the answer to polarization. I think const- a constitution, well, first of all, it might be in on some level a way to bring people back together around a consensus. And God knows we need that. But it will probably have to be post-Brexit because it can't be, it couldn't happen until this issue is resolved because everybody would be trying to gerrymander it to make sure that, that it, as it applied to their view on Brexit, because this is what's what happening at the moment with all the rules. So it'd have to be post-Brexit. But I do think there is an, an, a possibility of bringing people back together through a constitutional convention and through a sort of, you know, and it also involves this question of, of the of the devolved um, nations as well, mm. um, which is extremely important and central to that whole picture. But I also, I do think that at that stage, you're not writing down the rules to solve the problems. You're writing down the rules to protect you the next time this happens. And it, you know, it might be a generation's time, but the next time we our political system is breaking down, mm. it would be good to be able to predict and you know, until three day, three days ago, we didn't even know if uh, if the executive could prorogue Parliament for a year, and that is an extraordinarily dangerous situation to be in. And there <laughs> will be any number of, I'm probably about to see them, any number of other gaps, which unfortunately the courts are just going to have to decide gap by gap, and that just can't be a sustainable position for a country in crisis. I I, com- I completely agree that doing it gap by gap and you know looking for. Uh, or trying to resolve in a piecemeal fashion all of these areas of ambiguity in the constitution is not a sustainable way to go. I have to say, though, I'm a bit more pessimistic about whether or not that's what is actually going to happen. I mean, for two reasons. One is uh, I think it's going to happen during the course of of, uh, Brexit, which is going to continue for some time. I mean, uh, post-Brexit at the moment is not something that we can actually contemplate because it's it's going to carry on and on. And the other part is because, you know, whatever you talk about in terms of post-Brexit, there's one thing which is, the resolution of the current period do we leave you know with a deal without a deal do we revoke but the second is the longer term implications for our uh, politics and that's not going anywhere anytime soon the one thing i know as a historian is that the narratives around this are going to dominate for a good 10 years or so of who felt that they won didn't win you know why they think things happen the way they did and the constitution's going to get thrown into that of people arguing that you know they could have done it if not for this and therefore I just don't feel that we'll get to that sort of settled position where we can look in some kind of objective way at our constitution which is why I think there will be a certain amount of piecemeal codification rather than a sort of wholesale reform. I'm going to give Adam uh, who's advocating this big constitutional um, overhaul uh, a bit of time to mull um, how on earth we could get it done, because that's always the big question, isn't it? But I want to ask you, Cass, in particular, about the running of Parliament. Um, like, one of the ways that Brexit's played out uh, as it has is because John Burko has been willing to do some fairly extraordinary things in terms of what motions he's allowed and what limits he's put on what the government could bring back and all the rest of that. One of the referees we've had in the old good chap system is that the Speaker would be trusted by all sides. Um whether you admire John Burko or not, he isn't trusted by all sides anymore. Will we be able to reinvent the traditional form of the British speaker or are we going to be left with something more like the US system where it's almost a party figure? You've got the short-term and the long-term uh, answer to that, and I don't know how long-term the long-term answer is. Short-term, look, the speaker has 
uh, John Burko has created a situation where we're going to have a new speaker who is uh, put in place before we have a general election. That means mm. that even when, you know, if, the, if at the next election a majority government is returned, they won't necessarily have the ability to impose their own speaker. So therefore it's still going to reside with Parliament, with the current Parliament, to choose the next one. And they'll do that partly on the basis of reflecting on the role that John Burko has played uh, doing that. Longer term, I think there are some fundamental questions about, you know, it depends, again, who gets in after the next election and what their view is. A lot of the frustration with John Burko is probably from his, you know, former party around him personally. So they might view another speaker differently. A new speaker might assert themselves as much more of an independent uh, or try to present themselves as a sort of reasserting that kind of independent role. Um, so there are big questions around that. There's a broader issue that I'd say here about what we've just been talking about in terms of the constitution where next for it, which is parliamentary rules and, and uh, procedures as well. And I think before we get to the uh, reviewing the entirety of the constitution, there's probably a big project that parliament needs to do, and particularly the House of Commons, about reviewing its standing orders. And there's probably areas of our constitution they can get into through the standing or orders, other areas where they want to firm it up and so forth. So I can see them doing a big stop take sometime in the next year about an awful lot of things and adam this in a way makes the point into what i was going to ask you because all these things that we kind of think of as constitutional like the standing orders of the commons that say that you know the government is normally in charge of the timetable we now learn can be changed and always could be changed by a majority of one and so how do you begin to think about having a conversation that leads to an outcome that is more entrenched if you want these rules in the end to be more entrenched i'm sympathetic to jeff king's perspective which is that you don't talk about content you talk about process and you don't actually say what the content's going to be at all and the process has to be in focused on first of all pulling this out of the as much as possible it's not going to be you know, entirely out of the rough and tumble of party political, you know, backstabbing, you know, for this not to be, it certainly can't be run by a party or by a particular government. It has to be a cross-party, deliberative and inclusive approach. And there's plenty of different models for that, constitutional conventions, you know, groups of 100 randomly chosen people, plus some MPs, plus proportionally represented uh, uh, political party representatives, plus someone from the judiciary, whatever. There are ways to do that. And, and in the end, that has to be put to the country. If you want to entrench a constitution, obviously the, there's some theoretical questions about whether you could in our system but I think re the re political reality is if you put that to a referendum and two-thirds of the country or more voted for it it would end up being entrenched it's just a quite it's a it's a long process it would have to be creative it would have to be um deliberative and I think in the end it's not clear that it would work or not but it's worth a try, worth a try. <laughs> although a try through the fraught now fraught road of the referendum Kath let's just try in closing to bring it back towards Brexit and um we know predictions are a mugs game but come on let's go for it like <laughs> do you think there's any real chance that we're going to be out on the 1st of November uh at this do you know I'm 50 50 because uh there's been so many dramatic sort of changes you know day by day sometimes hour by hour 
Um, and it's very difficult to know. If you look at the legislation, the Ben Act, you would say, no, you know, the government has no legal way to do that. Um, but politics at the moment with Brexit is a very different thing. And, and you've got this, you know, battle between Parliament and the executive that is a long way from being resolved. So, uh, no, I'm sticking very much on the fence on this. Adam? I think I, I've got a feeling there may be a deal. And I'll I tell you why. I think that this what's happened is this process has become so miserable for so many people on every side in every party that there will there there must be a will to get some kind of a deal and where there, where it is see, it does seem to be narrowing down to a relatively small area of disagreement although one which might end up um uh, sinking the entire thing so I think the in terms of pressure there is enough pressure there to generate some kind of a deal. And I think if the Prime Minister came back with a deal that, that looked like it wasn't the backstop, even if it was virtually the backstop, I think Parliament would, would bite his hand off because everybody wants an end to it. <laughs> you heard it here first. Let's um, wait and see. It's only a matter of... Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST weeks but that's all for this time our producer is rebecca blue and i'm tom clark if you've enjoyed this podcast then please do leave us a rating or a review which really does help thank you very much for listening and until next time goodbye